hello friends. This is an Apple Music interview version of the world-famous Emo Dad podcast. What does this mean? No music. Why? Apple doesn't let us play songs. Does it sound a bit weird when we introduce a song and nothing happens? Nah. But, you know, you still get the conversation and all the good times. For the full version, switch on over to Spotify and search Emo Dad. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Welcome to another special edition of Emo Dad Podcast. My name is Matt. My name is James. And today we are joined by Brian McTiernan, who is the frontman of legendary hardcore punk band Battery. Um, also, he's been in bands Ashes and Milton and many, many more, um, and is currently the singer for Be Well. He is also super, super producer who has produced albums by artists such as Thrice, Circus Survive, Turnstile, Hot Water Music, and loads more. It was a really interesting chat where he was super honest about his battles with mental health um, and gave us some awesome stories about his life and being a producer and being in a band. I hope you enjoy the interview. Brian. Thank you and welcome to Emo Dad Podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute uh, honor to have you on here. And we are we're super excited to um, quiz you about lots of aspects of your, your life um, and, uh, <laughs> and bands and studios and all sorts of things. Um, very so, I mean, let, let's go back to the, the very beginning, if, if we may. So, um, Let's talk a little bit about your your early life now i've listened to a few podcasts and um, read interviews and things um and, and would it be set fair to say you had um a bit of a troubled youth growing up yes very very <laughs> much so it was uh yeah i mean i think um i had like a very like you know very crazy like home life my parents were my dad has like pretty severe obsessive compulsive disorder and my mom has had like you know severe depression and and then and then we just like i just don't think they knew what to do with us you know my but both my older brother and i i we, he had like a lot struggle with mental illness but he kind of just shut down where i kind of acted out i mean i was like doing graffiti and getting in fights and getting kicked out of school and just hooking up with tons of girls and just out of <laughs> out of fucking con out of control actually the when i met my wife um um my my best friend called her and said i wouldn't date him he's gonna ruin your life <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, uh, I that's what that, best friends that, do i hope that didn't end that wasn't the case in the end <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> remains to be seen now we've been together for um 
27 years. So. Oh, wow. That's a good effort. That's a good effort. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, and uh, I, I read that you um, you got institutionalized at 13. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, that was that was a very I think that, again, I think it was one of those things where like my parents just didn't know what to do. I was getting in a lot of fights and like like I got kicked out of school and my parents ended up like it was weird because I grew up in in like the D.C. area and I knew all these kids that were like into music and into the same shit that I was that were like in private school and they seemed to be just like me but doing fine you know like they, they were like functioning and I was like what so I kept saying to my parents like I feel like if I could go somewhere like that it would I would be okay because I mean thing thing is like my school was like 2,500 kids and it was like you know, all these jocks and all this shit. And like, I just didn't fit with any of that. And I just was, I mean, like nobody ever was like, oh, this guy's smart. It was just like, this kid's like fucked up. And I mean, I skipped the first week of high school. <laughs> like okay. I would just, so my parents ended up taking me to see, uh, after I got kicked out and they didn't know what to do, they took me to see this doctor and, and it was like, I think she didn't know what to do. And then she gave, she told my parents like, oh, you know, you should, like they based, she convinced them to trick me into going to this hospital. So it was like, my mom told me like, we're gonna go get you tested so that you can go to one of those schools that you wanna go to. And we like literally showed up at this hospital and I'm, we're like had breakfast, I'm in a great mood. We're like walking down this hallway and then I walk through this door and she doesn't. Oh, oh my goodness. Close the door. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, I guess, you know, it's hard because I think that um, when I was a kid, like mental health stuff was just not talked about. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and I think they didn't want to like scar me by like having everybody know that that had happened. And, but I mean, the reality is like, because they didn't tell anyone nobody even knew what the fuck happened to me like I didn't have one visitor in a month none of my friends even knew I was there really and it was like oh my goodness and it was extra fucked up because now I think it's illegal but I was on a ward with like adults so like wow it was like it was like it was just very very fucked up situation and then um and then I got out of there and then that was like, I mean, the weird thing about that was it was traumatic, but it was also like, it was peaceful in compared to being okay. at home in a weird way because okay. my family life was very, like I used to just go out and not come home until like 11 or 12 at night because I just didn't want to like see anybody or, you know, so I got, when I got out, then my parents were just like, I, I don't know, it's, it's weird. It's like my wife and I are such advocates for my daughter where my parents are just kind of like, they didn't know what to do. They just kind of threw their hands up. And um, I didn't go back to school for like two or three months after I got out. And um, finally my godmother like was said, like they have to let him back. <laughs> he can't just let him back. <laughs> Cool. Right in the streets. So, 
so while all that happened, the good thing is I started playing music. I started meeting some other people and I started a band and like, and then, and then I finally got back in school and I, I went to a different school and I felt like I was getting my shit together. And then it's actually like the anniversary is coming up, but then my, the bass player in my band, who was like one of my best friends got struck by lightning and died. Oh my God. And it was just like wrecked my fucking life. And then, and then I was like a total mess again. And, um, and then I went and spent like a long period that summer up with my friend up in um, like uh, this place called Martha's Vineyard. That's like a beach towny kind of thing. And I, and I started writing songs and like, I got back and, um, and for some reason I went back, to, my parents put me back in the school I had originally been in. And the like <laughs> second week I got in like a big fight again and <laughs> they were gonna kick me out again. And my mom ended up calling the principal of the other school I was at. And he was like, no, he can come back here. And I went back there okay. and I was fine there. I didn't really know anybody. So it was like, good and and that's where I kind of met oh I mean it was that era where I started meeting more people that I could kind of like fit in with and got more into art and graffiti and music and um I mean a lot of those people that from that next phase of my life I'm still like really super close with um so, 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 so do yeah. you feel like the um the dis- discovering music and starting bands and things helped you in that kind of uh, process of of getting your life back together a hundred percent because well not only playing music but like just listening to music in general Mm -hmm. like i think like punk and hardcore was like up until i was really knee deep in that i mean i like had spent my whole life feeling like i'm fucked up and everything else in the world is like fine (laughs) and it was like i just (laughs) didn't know that there were other people that like had similar feelings and had similar goals and like punk and hardcore in general like it was just so small back then I like I don't think people realize that like a big show in DC like going to a hardcore show 250 people would be like a big like Gorilla Biscuits would be like 250 300 people and it was like big deal I mean now that's not a big show I mean (laughs) the scene was not big then so it was like you kind of the cool thing about that was you just knew everybody and even the bands like I um I ended up I mean it's one of the reasons that I was able to like get my career going as a producer so young is that every demo I got I would write the band a letter you know I I love this demo and then they would write me back and they would stay at my house when they were on tour and it was just like you know, I mean, it's amazing, like, how many of those relationships, I mean, how many of the people in those bands that, like, I met when I was, like, 13, 14 years old. I mean, it's, like, pretty fucking awesome, and I just don't think that would have, I mean, you know, you can DM somebody on Instagram or whatever, you know (laughs) what I mean, but it's really different than, like, sitting down with the pen in your hand and writing a letter and sending it back and once I started like getting letters back from people that were like in bands that I loved that's what made me think like I could do this and I had never been good at anything in my life really you know I wasn't like super athletic or a great skater or good at school but like 
all of a sudden I was surrounded by people that just felt an awful lot like me. And, and I was like, you know, going to shows. I mean, like you go to a show and, you know, I mean, you see like judge play and Sammy Siegler's the drummer and he's my age. And it's like, it's, you start, it's not like, I just felt like, why can't I can do this? You know what I mean? Like, and and that was the magic. I think if I had gone to see them play and it was two 2,500 people in a barrier and, you know, they spent the night in the green room or whatever, I wouldn't have had that same feeling um, that, that I had then. So, yeah. Right, so, so I mean, I started, I, my first, the first record, like I started singing in a band when I was in eighth grade, like 14, I played my first show in 1990 with sick of it all at the safari club oh wow wow <laughs> yeah and it was just and it was it was it was awesome i mean and then i and then i was hooked and and it's you know the short version is the, yes i think it i think not just playing music but finding underground like emo and hardcore and punk in general was like the thing that made, gave me hope that like I wasn't totally alone, I think, sure, you know, sure. especially growing up in DC where like, you know, emo was born, like to me, like right to spring and embrace those records are, I, I started going to shows like very soon after those records came out. And those things, um, those things are just like one, they're masterpieces, but two, I just felt an, and an extra deep connection to them because they were like my hometown bands in a yeah that's important right it is it's huge i mean it's like and um and then it was like you know and and the funny the funny thing is like back then with like emo i didn't see the like to me it was all in the same umbrella like sure like my, the first show I ever went to, I mean, I would say that like Soulside is like a premier emo band in in a lot of ways. But first show I went to was Flaming Lips, Soulside, and Uniform Choice. Yep. And, wow. You know what I mean? And it's like, to me, that wasn't weird at all. I mean, sure. it was not. It wasn't. Now that would be really weird. <laughs> but only. Oh, I'd go. <laughs> but, but only, only because I think that like all of those subgenres, none of them were big enough on their own. Sure. To, you, you, you know what I mean? To, to exist totally independently. Like now all of that stuff is so big on its own that it can just have its own lane in a way, but, but it, it didn't then. So that was more fun, sure. right? With all these bands that were loosely connected um, rather than watching the same band, same three bands play in one night sort of thing. I, I loved that. Now, now I feel like, yeah, like a lot of times I go to see bands and it's like, I can't, I mean, sometimes I feel this way just in general with some newer bands is that I can't tell them apart even sometimes. And that has to do with records are made in such it pre-internet, pre-digital everything. I I think that you had a lot more regional sounds than you have now too. You had more more like cross-platforming of the genres. You know, like I never really thought of like Uniform Choice as like a different lane than like 
verbal assault or a gorilla biscuits or anything like that now it'd be like i mean even with be well it's like funny because it's like the i mean to me it's like a hardcore band or an emo band or whatever it is and it's like it's like people are like, oh that's not hardcore that's not emo that's not whatever i mean like it's not like i and, and like uh, there's like i mean to me it's all hard like to me it's like all of it is like a subgenre of hardcore in my mind and it was like that I remember the first time anybody ever said the word emo to me. Yeah. And we were, I was, I was, I was at a friend's house and we were talking about, we were talking about Rights of Spring. And I, he said, well, that's not hardcore, that's emo. And this was in 1987 or something. Wow. And I was like, I was like, what is emo? He was like, well, it's emotional hardcore. It's, it's like, instead of being pissed about the world around you, it's reflective on your own feelings. And to me, I still think that way. I still think that like music in like, it's more the, 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 the content, like the, the, um, the feeling that it evokes more than the sound per se for me when I'm like deciding what's what. And, and then like, the thing is like, I don't really give a shit what people think it is or isn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I just like, I, I, there was like this one record review that was like, I have no idea why these guys are calling themselves hardcore and blah, blah, blah. And I just wanted to be like, you know what? Fuck you. That's <laughs> 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 all I've done for 37 years, you know, whatever. Like I've literally been playing hardcore music since I was in grade school. I get to make that call, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's just the one card I'm gonna pull. Like I, think, <laughs> that, that's yeah, I, I, and I, and I, I think I, you fully earned that. Um, uh, yeah. Could you pick us a song to play to kind of um, sum up this kind of musical time in your life? What which musical time? Oh, the so the, I guess this kind of like this kind of early kind of rites of spring era when emo's just starting and this kind of gorilla biscuits that sort of time period. Yeah, I would say uh, "Rights of Spring" for one of. That's that's okay. my, that's my, uh, that's my my jam. Cool. Well, here it is. Tell us a little bit about your time in. Um, I want to say battery because that's how you guys say it. <laughs> we would say well, we would say, say battery. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or battery, depending if we depending if we've been in yeah, we would say yeah. battery, and we get in trouble for knocking the tea off. Well, battery is battery is a weird <laughs> one because bat battery, like looking back, this is also strange, but <laughs> battery started. They had okay, zooming back. <laughs> I dated this girl when I was in middle school. And her brother played drums in this like skinhead band called Strength in Numbers. And they, I used to go over there and watch them rehearse all the time. And as I got more into like the youth crew, like Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, that kind of stuff, um, the guitar player in, in Strength in Numbers, he was really into that too. And we started talking. I mean, I guess it's really weird now because it, I have a daughter that's the age that I was then. Right. And like, <laughs> I mean, I just couldn't even imagine 
letting her run around and do all the shit that but and like ken the guitar player in battery he was 18 and i was like 13 or something at the time 12 or whatever he said to me i'm starting a youth crew band if you want to come watch us practice i'll pick you up after school you can stay at my house and then i'll drive you home the next day so on the weekend okay i would go stay at his house and he they would practice and i would watch and like i mean i i it totally taught me i mean i wasn't even playing an instrument at that time but just like watching them arrange songs and try different feels and put things together and he was like a really brilliant writer and guitar player and i just like and then at the end of after they practiced we'd play covers and i would sing they didn't have a singer okay and so when they went to the studio they were they booked time and i don't know that this is true but it makes it a better story that it was dave Grohl's basement that does make okay. it a good story <laughs> well so the guy who recorded the first battery record was barrett jones who was the sound man for scream and the producer of the first foo fighters record and i remember then everybody saying oh this is the guy from scream lives here and this is pre-nirvana sure so yeah 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 so so he is responsible for me probably playing music period because at that time i wasn't even playing guitar um but i was singing they ended up writing lyrics and i started singing their songs at practice okay and so I'm telling him this when they're recording, they went in to record to get a singer and they were going to like give this tape out to people and have people try out. Okay. And he is the one that was like, you know what, just go sing what you sing at practice. And I was in eighth grade, you know what I mean? I was like 13 <laughs> years old. <laughs> so I just went and did it and it came out awesome. I saw, right. I saw Amazing, a, um, right? a photo of you playing, uh, you mentioned it briefly just now, playing a show when you must have been around that 14 or something yeah and so, you look so young and yeah. like were you not scared <laughs> <laughs> i was i was pretty scared in that and there is a really embarrassing video that exists <laughs> from that era and my daughter loves to show it to her friends <laughs> because i was like i think i was like 13 or 14 and we get up and we're about to play and I say something stupid and our guitar player breaks the string. <laughs> and then okay. I'm just standing so this up isn't there. like my dad's cool. This is like, look at my dad, he doesn't know what the my fuck he's doing. My dad is an embarrassment, yes. <laughs> so, so interestingly with Battery what was we really only played two shows and then I wanted to write much more emotional lyrics and I didn't okay. want to sing like they were just writing like they had a song about apartheid and like you know okay. apathy and you know like it didn't matter to me and I and and I don't know what gave me the guts but they didn't want me to write lyrics so they didn't like my lyrics so like the band I quit and okay they and this was this was ninety one. And they started a band called Worlds Collide without me. And, um, and then when I went to the hospital for that time that I taught myself how to play guitar. And when I got out, I started 
a bit like an emo band called Rise with a female singer and um, and the the drummer um, in Rise was Matt Squire, who's producer of like Panic at the Disco and yeah and lots of other other things. And then Noah, who was my friend that got struck by lightning and died. And so after Noah, we played a, a we played a, a few shows before he died. When he died, we decided to not add a new member to the band, and we moved our second guitar player to bass and started over as Ashes. And so Ashes was like actually my main, really I would say like my first main main band. Um, sure. Battery had only played like two or three shows when we broke up the first time, and Ashes was very active, and we played every weekend and toured and I mean it was crazy because we were like 15 like our singer's dad would drive us <laughs> we flew to California and did like a west coast tour where we played with like Sinsfield and Farside and Game Face like every fucking rad band when we were 15 and like couldn't drive I mean it was like it was just wild man you know it's just like a wild it was a wild, it was a wild time. And then Ashes was very successful, actually. I mean, we, we did really well. And my only regret with Ashes is everything we ever recorded, we recorded in like a day. Like, okay. we just like, would go into the studio and record live. I'd double my guitar, Elena with our, we had a singer, Elena, she would sing and then we'd mix it and that was it. That was like, like, I just feel like, God, man, if we had gone in with like, a real producer who had taken some time and because like I mean it's I think you can look Elena our singer was amazing and then Matt Squire and I were like the primary songwriters and we both went on to exactly do well and yeah I mean I I feel like the sky was kind of the limit we just we were so young and yeah and then so towards the end of that the short version is a European label ended up putting the battery demo out on CD. It started to do really well in Europe. I was like at the end of high school and like, I was really, you know, I didn't give a shit about school at all. So <laughs> we got an opportunity to like this, they wanted us to come to Europe and tour. And I just said, fuck it and dropped out of school and went on tour and that was it. And here you are today. Right. <laughs> Still yeah, so, so Ashes ended up, we toured and we broke up. And um, we, we, when they, when everybody graduated high school, we all, Matt Squire and I both moved to Boston and we tried to do Ashes and it didn't quite work. And then we started a new band called Milltown. And then it was like, I, you guys are so much younger than I am, but there was like a period of time when every, major labels were like signing every band in the emo rock punk world and sure, literally yeah. after like five or six shows we had all these major labels bidding for us and so Milltown how, did and, that, how did that feel it was awesome we signed this huge major label deal we we're all on salary we went in with the shitty fucking producer and <laughs> we spent like I, I have to imagine, I think it was like two hundred dollars or $300,000 recording this record wow. that was a piece of garbage. The producer <laughs> like, it's interesting. It's like 
you would think, I just learned the type of producer I didn't want to be from him. Okay. You know, yeah. like I was recording a lot of bands and I really cared a lot and I worked really yeah, hard. So, so you were already recording, you'd already started producing before all this happened. Yes. So, so, sorry, I keep jumping around, but Matt Squire had an eight track tape recording machine in his basement that we always recorded. Mm -hmm. And then um, I, we, like, as when I decided to move to Boston, I thought maybe I'll just open a studio, which seemed insane <laughs> at the time. But I borrowed a little bit of money from my parents. We took some of Matt Squire's equipment and combined mm -hmm. what I bought with what he had. And I started Salad Days in the basement of a house I lived in with like six very understanding roommates <laughs> and it was I mean it was a seller it was like it was like not not nice down there yeah. and, and um and I thought oh this is gonna be fine and then it was like took took a took a minute to catch on <laughs> and um my first break was the um Rama Mayo. Do you guys know the record label Big Wheel Recreation? They put out like the Pieball stuff. Yeah. They put yeah, out okay. they, they put out a lot of cool stuff. Well, I had not recorded one band yet in the first like two or three months I had my studio there. And I was working in a video store. And one day Rama Mayo just stopped by and and said, Oh, I have a band that's um needs a recorded demo. And and they booked time and it was my first client and it was Casper and Hike actually. And, um, and then I lucked out because they were like really good. And the, <laughs> the, the secret is it's not that hard to make really great songs played well, sound good. <laughs> right. So the they made me sound like I knew what I was doing a lot more than I did. <laughs> and, um, and then they were just like old school guys from Boston that, were well respected and then it just started people started calling and I went from um not recording one band that first year early on to by the end of that year um I had recorded Caven, Piebald, Converge, Texas is the Reason I mean and Texas is the Reason happened the exact same way they I I knew Garrett and Norm from when Ashes toured and played with, um, played with Shelter and Norm from Texas as the reason was playing and Shelter and Garrett was a roadie for this band Split Lip that we played with. Anyway, they heard I had a studio and just wanted to come do a demo and nobody thought it was gonna come out awesome. And we recorded that first seven inch. I was 18 years old and, wow, wow. and I'll never forget, I had never recorded anything that like, ever came out <laughs> and, <laughs> you, like you know it like sure. demos and stuff but Jordan from Revelation called me and was like and I was like holy I mean this is fucking crazy and yeah. he's like oh I need I need the the dat for the the master for the Texas is a reason and I didn't they didn't have a band name when they came so I didn't even know what he was talking about and I mean interestingly I had like two dats 
and I just put everybody on those dad. Like I didn't even have something I could send them at the time and I had to figure that out. It just started. And then, and then it was like, once it happened, it, it just, I mean, it was like a snowball. So by the time the Milltown thing happened, my production career was pretty like, I mean, I was only 19, but I mean, I was recording band after band after band at that point. And at that point for labels. So, I mean, I, it was funny because I had all these ideas about like, you know, how passionate you needed to be, how much you, how hard you had to work, how you had to listen to the demos. I'm like, you know, I had this stuff I was doing and then Milltown's like, and I was charging $10 an hour, you know, Milltown goes in with this fucking shithead producer and we're paying a fortune. He never listened to anything. He had no ideas. Anything we wanted to do, he thought was stupid. I mean, it was like, he okay. didn't care and it didn't matter. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. If one, you don't care and two, yeah. you don't understand what the ultimate goal is. And I think that is, those are the two things that I was always able to use to make up for my lack of experience was I cared maybe too much. Okay. And the biggest benefit was that like, I totally understood what the influences were and what people wanted it to sound and feel like. So it wasn't like, you know, bands had to come to me and go, okay, let me play you the sunny day real estate. So you understand what we're going for. It was like, sure. I could hear it and go, oh, these guys love sure. sunny day. Like that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Like we should track it like this. So I think that like, at the time now there's like a million people like that but it was pretty uncommon there weren't there weren't like there weren't sure. like a lot of people that like it like now i mean now you can spend a few thousand dollars and have a recording setup but it wasn't like that then and i mean you really had to have a lot of shit and um it was cool man it was a it was an exciting an exciting time and also like it's just so cool how many of those records still matter you know like sure, yeah sure. well it's 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 the basis for our uh, podcast yeah, basically. <laughs> sure, basically um so if we could press you to play sort of one song from that era maybe something you'd produced is there something that you were particularly proud of or would sum up those yeah. kind of early recordings i'm trying okay so if you could play the first song on the texas is the reason seven inch i never know song names because when bands are recording they almost never have them <laughs> it's always like song one or like sunny day five two <laughs> James is our in-house uh, song checker. Okay, so gonna... what have they got? The only thing they have... So this is... Yeah, so this is annoying. We're going to have to do some research and figure out which song it is because the only thing they have on Spotify is yeah. the compilation, which is the complete it's, collection. It, it's, it's on there. So I'm going to tell you right now. what I'm so embarrassed. Oh. We can edit this out. <laughs> you know what the coolest... The coolest uh, the coolest thing that ties everything together is um, 
Norm from Texas is the reason ended up writing the Be Well bio. And I just thought, I just thought, what a fucking cool, you know, way to, um, why, why you, you search for it? It seems like everyone in the scene seems to know Norm. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. He's just like, it's, he's, I, I don't know. Like, he's just like, Norm just like, he was just always so nice. Like, I just feel like, it's like funny because <laughs> I look back and it's like Ashes plays with Shelter and I'm 15 and like, I'm not sure if I was Norm, I would be as nice to me as he was. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> just always treat, like, like the, like the Texas is the reason, like, I mean, like, I mean, when they came back to do like the promise ring split and like, I just, they never treated me like some little kid that didn't know what he was doing. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that like, I looked up to them so much. I really like think that them taking me seriously really like, gave me the confidence in a lot of ways to um sure when you're yeah when you're when you're that age you just need well i'd say this in my career i just needed that little bit of validation that like yeah you can do this it's not that hard they're just people like you <laughs> right right well and again they were so good so it's yeah. like you know what i mean like <laughs> i try and explain this to bands all the time which is like Good songs just sound better. <laughs> That's a very... That, it's, it's, you know, you can come in all you want and be like, I want this snare sound and I want this and I want that. And it's like, every time I'm going to be like, I just want some fucking great songs and they'll sound great. It's just, it's just the way it goes. <laughs> yeah, right? a good snare sound doesn't make a good song. No, I mean, On its own. <laughs> it can make, it can make, it can make a good song hit the way that you really want it to hit, but... I just think that that ultimately what people remember is the the song and the performance and the passion and all of that and um, you know so it's, no I was uh, okay if it's if it's here when we get back it's ours that's it that's the song only because I recorded that when I was eighteen and I, it still makes me goose gives me goosebumps when I listen to it and I. It's funny, actually, because, I mean, I guess this shows you how, um, I mean, I don't think that many people would, like, think of Texas as the reason as hardcore. Sure. Right? I just thought, like, oh, this is cool emo core. Like, this sounds like Turning Point meets Sunny Day. Really? Sure, like, sure. that's, I mean, that's just yeah, what I yeah. thought. And I didn't really think this is this whole other thing but i mean that's what's exciting is it, it changed everything i mean i think texas to me like that was a big tide turning point in like what emo was um in my opinion so you've covered loads of my questions i'm trying to figure okay. out where to cut back in <laughs> so, well, you, so milton there... broke up right said, thank you and then that was you don't it. need me that, that <laughs> happened really fast because we basically broke up in the studio and they like right. the, the record was a pile of garbage and um <laughs> we were going to record a new record and we were going to start over but the tension of all that boiled over there was a physical right. altercation wow it, okay. it's over and it was yeah. like and we actually played last, oh my God, 
two years ago in October? No. Again with Caven. And some of us had not seen or spoken to each other in the 20 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was like, it was pretty crazy. Isn't it mad looking back now? Um, like you, you tell the story about the awful producer um, and how the, the album didn't work out and the band didn't work out, et cetera, et cetera. Yet the band had two of the most influential producers of the whole scene ever in it <laughs> yeah well it's fun it's funny actually because matt i mean matt and i we had at the end of the band a little bit of a falling out not it wasn't like bad but it was like i mean it's hard to go through something like that and not everybody's was frayed you know like we all you know it and none of us really talked for a long time and then um and then but I was recording and Matt was like, stayed in Boston, was like writing and doing, doing bands. And he had gotten into like Pro Tools and I didn't know Pro Tools at all. I was doing everything on analog tape. Okay. And then as time went on and we started talking more and more and I was like so busy in the studio, I ended up saying to him, why don't you move down here and help me in the studio? So actually, if you look at, there was a period of time before Panic at the Disco happened, where like the Thrice Artists in the Ambulance yeah. album and um, Hot Water Music, um, the new What Next, and a, a whole bunch of records. Matt was my, I hate to say assistant on, but sure, he, was, sure. he was doing the like Pro Tools editing for me on those records. And then I kind of helped him find a studio space and kind of get up on his feet as his own producer and then like I just swear to god like if you look I think that Panic at the Disco was like the second or third <laughs> record he ever produced and it was just like boom and it all it was so crazy and the thing is we were I mean he you know eclipsed me in terms of like big records you know he ended up then buying my studio from me and is still oh, there wow. in Beltsville um, in Beltsville, Maryland, as you would say, <laughs> Maryland. Yep. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and then I moved my studio to Baltimore and, you know, we both produce. So it's, it's interesting you say that because had Milltown not broken up, I don't think either of us would have gone on to have the production careers. I mean, because it's just in the same way that like I was in the right time and place to have Texas as the reason to roll into my life on a, you know, an even bigger scale, Matt, similarly with, um, you know, Panic at the Disco. And it was, it was pretty, pretty wild, man. I mean, it was pretty. Yeah, that album did okay, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I'm happy for, Matt always was like, it's funny because it's like, he was always like a pop, guy and i think that's why we okay. did really well together because i was like the oh the band should sound like this like this should be the vibe like it should be chunky guitars with female vocals like like more the color guy and matt was more of the like okay that's the sound here's a hit <laughs> you know what i mean like it, it, we were a really okay, great right. team like when we would drive to shows together if i was driving i might put on like rage against the machine or dag nasty and he'd put on like seal or alanis morissette <laughs> or prince okay <laughs> you know okay. what i mean like okay 
So I think that like, it's funny cause you can, I can now be zoomed out enough to look at that and go, oh shit, that makes, it totally makes sense. Like where we, we ended up, you know, like sure, what sure. we ended up doing because I was never a pop guy. So he was much more um, prepared for a Panic at the Disco monster triple platinum record than, than I was to be, you know, fair. But I take a lot of pride in his success because I, I always knew he was super talented and I feel like I helped him convince him that he could do that and be a producer and, you know, do his own thing, so. Yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah. amazing. Um, and it's always so nice to be able to, to champion friends without, but also like at the same time at the back of your head going, damn it, I want your success. <laughs> but then you, but then, you know, but everyone's like, it's, um, yeah, good times. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because when Matt took off, my next assistant in the studio was this guy, Paul Levitt, who then went on to produce All Time Low. So he's got like double platinum too. And I'm like, hey, Come on, guys. <laughs> I, hope you're on, I hope you're on commission for all these. <laughs> I know, I should, I should I, you, you guys could put in a call, I should be getting points on that yeah. or something. Yeah, we'll do our best. Um, we did look at your like, like, like your, your, your production history, which is, and what, A, it's like it is absolutely a who's who of, of the scene. But I think the thing that struck me the most was how many records you were making a year yes um, <laughs> i i literally was making record after i mean there was probably several years where i may not have taken a day off yeah i mean it was like it was fucking crazy was, I, mean, I mean is that normal to go I say normal. It's that because I don't I don't know the industry. Is, is it that normal to go back to back bands almost one a month is what it looks like? I think I mean, I feel like I don't follow it closely. I feel like like maybe like Will Yip may, might do that. Okay. Um, I feel like it was not normal then, I don't think. Um, okay. I just think that it was like I mean, it was, it was, it, it was record after record after record. And, and, and I just, I think that that was a period of time when it was like, I feel like there, you know, I was pretty honest about my early days where I didn't quite know what I was doing, but then I definitely <laughs> hit a point where I was able to kind of package the passion and the commitment okay. and the understanding of the influences with some actual ability and that was when shit was like really happening you know what i mean like i mean i i like i remember i did the i did strike anywhere changes the sound and then thrice illusion of safety and then bane the note back to back all three in a row and i do remember being like wow like yeah okay this whatever's happening here it is happening i mean this these are fucking important records i mean these yeah. are yeah. like you know i mean um and i mean it was exciting and the, the thing i loved about that era is that 
like you took like the movie life, Hot Water Music, Thrice, Hot Rod Circuit, Bane, I mean, Strike Anywhere, all those bands, they didn't sound anything alike. No. Really. <laughs> but they, 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 and I loved being kind of like the tie that binded it together. And they loved one another. It was so cool how like supportive of one another everybody was. It was like, oh, that's great. It was so cool. And it was like, people couldn't wait to. I mean, I remember when I finished um, How Water Music Caution. And then I flew out to see the Thrice guys. And it was like, all they wanted to do was hear How. And it was like, <laughs> couldn't, they couldn't wait to hear it. And I think that like now, I, I mean, not always, but there are definitely times now with some of the younger bands where it's like much more competitive. I think like, okay. I think we were at the beginning of an era that no one expected to blow up the way that it did. I mean, sure. I, I knew Thrice was a special important band, but if you had told me that 20 years later, they would be selling out 2,500 person rooms every night and making record after record after record that was just like monumental. I didn't, I mean, I, I'd never no, seen that no. happen. I didn't know, I mean, I, the, it, everybody was just, could tell something important was happening and were excited. And it was like one of those things where it was like, everybody was rising together and it wasn't, nobody really felt like, oh, their record doing well means my record's not doing well. It was much more like, wow, that record's so fucking good. Ours better be fucking good too. And I, it's like, I always think about it like when I was a skateboarder, none of my friends were good. So I, I kind of only got to a point and I thought I was good. And then one day I realized what good was and I realized it wasn't sure. where this community was so good and everybody just kept upping the ante on it, all of it you know it was like thrice thrice made you know illusion of safety and then it was like holy shit that's possible to like have that level and then everybody and it wasn't competitive it was in, inspiration to push yourself harder to work harder and then they all toured together like i remember um like thrice cave in and hot water music tour you know what i mean and it's like wow and i'm just like wow this is so like you know one of the first bands i recorded mixed in with like the first time i recorded caven they were like 15 and steve brodsky's mom called me to make sure it was a safe neighborhood and then <laughs> dropped dropped them off and waited at the international house of pancakes while we recorded yeah yeah <laughs> you okay. know what i mean and then all of a sudden it's like they're touring with thrice who I, you know i i don't know like i i just that period of time in my life was very exciting and like the sense of community that all of those bands had like was inspiring and like warm and not competitive or cutthroat and then it's interesting because i i feel that same sense of like they're in the baltimore scene it's actually very much like that too like the angel dust and turnstile and praise and a lot of these bands they're much more of that 
ilk where they are super supportive of each other and everybody's inspired by each other's records and when they want to top it it's only because somebody raised the bar not because they want to like be better than somebody else Uh, yeah it's so it's so interesting because i i when i discovered turnstile a few years back i remember just being so excited to hear a band that reminded me of that other time in my life right well the the funny thing is i ended up working with turnstile because have you guys ever heard diamond youth yes i think i have so i was recording an ep for diamond youth who i loved and brendan the singer from turnstile was the drummer and he was like oh i have this other band and he played it for me and i was literally like oh my god i fucking love that if you ever want to do something i'm down and then it's like cool you know but i mean the, yeah. the fun thing about turnstile is that that is a band that just they understand who they are they have such yeah. a clear vision of i mean i remember we were doing pre-production <laughs> maybe some of these stories won't make me sound that good but we were doing pre-production on non-stop feeling and i remember being like are you sure you guys want to have like verse chorus and then like two minutes of mosh (laughs) are you sure (laughs) are you sure we shouldn't bring the hook back and they're like nope (laughs) nope but part of your job as a producer is to understand the band's vision and understand when the band does have a clear vision. Cause there's a lot of times band come in and they have a lot of, they need you to be that. They need you okay. to be the one that goes, okay, I get all these things. Let me pull it together. There's other times when you have to say, you know what? These guys have a plan. I can feel it. And I'm gonna, even if it's like a little bit outside of my comfort zone, I'm gonna like go there with them. And, and then even with the mix on that record, I remember uh, that record, Nonstop Feeling, sounds fucking insane to me. <laughs> I sent them the first mix of the record and I was so happy with it. And it was like too pro sounding. And, okay. And I remember Brendan calling me and being like, yeah, it sounds good and punchy, but like, it needs to be weirder. It needs <laughs> to be unusual. And I said to him like, I don't know if I'm the right guy then I'm pretty happy with how this sounds and he was like just 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 trust me like just and we got together back in the studio and I'm like are you guys sure <laughs> wow they were, they were like yeah we're sure and they were and they were fucking right and yeah I did I take pride in that because I trusted them and yeah. part of your job is to know when the artist has a true vision and to know that at times your job is to help them capture their vision, not to create their vision. And I feel like that was a good example of that for me, where it was like, <laughs> they pushed me outside of my comfort zone and they were right. So, yeah. And, they, and, they're, and, and they're just fucking best guys. I mean, they're like, yeah, they're just like, and it's funny, it's like, they're like this. And I always think of this about Thomas from Strike Anywhere to the singer from Strike Anywhere. I don't think I've ever heard him say a bad thing about anyone. 
Oh, ever. I love that. Me too. I mean, I wish I was like that because I will definitely I'm not. say some bad, sh- <laughs> bad, bad things about people. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but it's like, yeah. I mean, I think if I kind of look back at it all, I think that like more than anything, I take, I, I don't really care what records have sold. I just, I feel like I take a lot of pride in, I know that the bands know how much I love them and how hard I worked. Like Mm -hmm. you can't control what it sells. You can't even control what people will like or not like, you know what I mean? Like all you can control is that you did everything you could to make it the best that it could be. And then ultimately a band can be unhappy with the snare sound or bass sound or a mix or whatever the fuck it is. But like, you know, if they know that you did everything you could, like you poured your heart and soul into it. I mean, that's, that's the most critical thing to me, you know? And I also think it is the most critical thing on with everybody to make things that are special and stand at the best of time. Like when I look back at the records that have lasted now that I have perspective on them, I'm not surprised because it was like the bands came in, they were prepared, they were focused, they were passionate, they were pushing themselves and they trusted me. And like the the combination of all those things really have to exist for something magical to happen. You know what I mean? And I think like, if I look back, the benefit, I think of me being someone that understood what inspired the bands to want to be bands in the first place is, I think they were like more comfortable pushing themselves around me because they weren't like, it wasn't like, you know, it, like I had never heard, like I was inspired by the same shit. So it's like, they do it. And I'm like, yes, that's fucking awesome. And it's like, (laughs) they know that we both want the same thing. And and it's like, anyway, it was a, you know, it was a, it's, it's been a wild ride. Amazing. Um, okay, Mr. Buck, I'm going to suggest we play two songs to cover off that whole period. Oh, yeah. You down for that? Yeah, let's do it. So I was thinking we play something from Illusion of Safety, and I think we play something from Nonstop Feeling just for fun, because that feels like the two things we've talked about. Yes. Um, So I I, I would say, um, actually playing, if you play Beltsville Crucible off Illusion of Safety, that can sum up a lot of what we just talked about because that song was written in the studio when they were in Beltsville with me recording. And it's kind of about the push and pull of the process of recording. So oh, wow. really, when Dustin says true friends stab you in the front, <laughs> I, I believe that he's talking about the raw honesty that is the producer's responsibility. <laughs> Brilliant. And okay, amazing. That's gravity, powerful. Maybe gravity off um, of yeah. track style. Yeah, wicked. That would be. That would. That would. I'm very pleased you said that. That would be my choice for sure. Amazing. Because that that's the one that that's the first song mm-hmm. I mixed, and that was the one that I was like pretty jazz on, and Brendan was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> not weird enough <laughs> interestingly i'm really anxious to hear the new turnstile because i thought that i mean i love time and space and the next turnstile yeah. record but i was kind of taken aback by how normal it sounds 
Okay, because you know because what of I mean? your experience. Yeah, well, sure. Just because I because of like what the band kind of like it was like it was much more in the lanes. You know what I yeah. mean? Then then nonstop feeling feels a little like out of control. Like not out yes. of control, but just a little wild, you know? And and um, <laughs> time and space is very like yeah like it's like a lot a lot of it's very like not too cool for school but like it's like it's a cool record like the things they throw in there the way they kind of they packaged it like it's a super like it's a, but like you said like it's like i wasn't surprised when you talked about them having a vision because that record hasn't had a vision back to back yeah yeah, yeah. They, they they're just like i don't know you ever know people that just are fucking cool as shit? Like, yes, just, I do. <laughs> all those guys, like, like the same thing with Angel Dust, like uh, Justice. He just fucking has a vision. I mean, it's like, yeah, it it's so cool. And the funny thing about Angel Dust was, I hope he doesn't get mad if he ever hears this, but I wasn't <laughs> sure I would like Justice. Do you know? Okay, because he's tough. You know what I mean? And he's yeah, got like yeah. a larger than life personality. And then we had this crazy shit happen when we did the Angel Dust record where the bass player at the time of Angel Dust had like beat up my studio mate who I was sharing his space with. And my okay. studio mate was like, okay, it's cool if you record Angel Dust, but the, that guy can't come, the bass player. Um, and I was, I had to call Justice. And the funny thing is Justice was like, yeah, I get that. Like, you know, like standard. He, 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 yeah, he, 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 like beat him up. Yeah, that's fine. Like he just won't come. And I was like, oh. And okay. then, but this is the funny thing about justice, and this is, I, 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 it stuck with me forever because it meant a lot to me. I remember we were talking first, first or second day of making that the, the AD record, and I said to him, yeah, man, the hardest thing is like now that i have a daughter this hour just kill me and he's like well what time do you like to get out of here and i'm like you know ideally like six or seven or whatever but like you know whenever and then every fucking night at like six o'clock he'd be like don't you have to get out of here and see that baby oh. and it was like, <laughs> wow what a guy i know and it was just like you know what man like he is tough <laughs> he's all this but he's a sweetheart you know, yeah. he he heard what I said and he respected it and he made a point of making like I dreaded every night being the fucking vibe killer who'd be like, hey, guys, yeah, I and he just took it off my plate. Don't you got let don't you got to get what a great guy, guy, baby? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Top man, top man. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's go into that then. So we had uh, Thrice and Turnstile back to back. Okay, so I think we should probably talk about Be Well. Sure. <laughs> um, so, uh, even though we've just played two songs back to back, I think it would be a good way to start this little uh, kind of section about your, your new band with another song. Um, so, I thought it would be really cool if you could tell us what song you, you feel best represents the album as a whole, if you could pick one song. Um, I would say confessional. It's the last song on the record is probably. Okay, cool. Well, this is confessional by Bewa. Okay, so uh, this is this is my my confession time. So I when I first watched um, the video for that song, confessional, I have to admit I'm a, I'm a, I've got two young girls. 
Um, yeah. James has got a got a a young girl as well, and I'm not ashamed to say that I teared up. I yeah. properly teared up watching that. Um, and I mean that song especially, but the whole the whole album, yeah, is so incredibly honest and raw and emotional. And it, I'm not just saying this because we're talking to you, but it it gave me this feeling which I honestly have not felt, and I can't explain it what it even is I haven't felt this feeling since probably 1999 when I first listened to Glassjaw genuinely right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I should probably um, clarify that it was a good a good feeling <laughs> it wasn't yeah, a bad yeah. feeling <laughs> um, it's just the whole the whole album just I don't know it resonates um, tell us about it why why did you decide to put this band together and um and write this album? Well, uh, I mean, it, a couple of things happened. So right around the time that I was doing the Turnstile record and the Angel Dust record, I was also, I mean, the, the, I mean, the lifestyle of being a producer and a father together was like hard. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, and, and I was, you know, back in, like, we talked earlier about, like, record after record after record after record. Well, like, one of the reasons that I was, fans loved working with me is that they were my everything when, and we work all day, all night, not take days off. Well, that's a lot harder when you're, you know, yeah, responsible yeah. for someone else. And the other thing that happened was, was a combination of that and for like as much as some of those bands I love, there were other bands that were coming in who were not as respectful and not as prepared and had less vision. And I just started really, really feeling like my, I needed like a, a change in my life at the time. And, um, and I decided to just totally walk away from, from music and, and, mm -hmm. um, at first, at first I sold the building where my studio was. And I thought that if I could get, you know, that financial pressure off, um, like the crazy thing was budgets went from whatever to like 10, 20% of what they had been. Wow. Like, I mean, and understandably the, the people weren't buying records digital thing had not taken off in the way that it had mm -hmm. and um you know like i just saw someone post today the um bouncing closure um separation came out okay and, wow like that's a record that i loved that band but i lost money to do the record <laughs> like i actually what i was yeah. paid didn't even cover the expenses of of having the facility and not not that it matters it's just that like you then have other responsibilities like I was the records I really wanted to do I I was not making money when I was doing them the records that had good budgets were often bands that were like I didn't love as much and yeah I started to feel I mean an additional thing is that I you know, I had struggled with mental health 
things on my own my entire life as we discussed from sure. my hospitalization and the combination of all of it was just starting to catch up with me and I didn't know what change I needed to make and I felt like the only change I could make was like dramatic and so I ended up <clears throat> I ended up um making too dramatic of a change and left music entirely <laughs> took a job at first as like a project manager for this big construction company but then within six months of being there I was the chief operating officer so I was like running this you know pretty big company and and, sure. um, and what is interesting about that was one I hated everybody I worked with what I was doing <laughs> felt what I was doing felt totally meaningless and yeah. I also was like alone with my thoughts for the first time ever I mean if you can if you look sure. at my discography you can see there wasn't a lot of time to process anything it was just boom 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 and so it was funny because I mean I would say like financially I was the best I'd ever been, you know, I mean, it was, I would, they were paying me really well. I didn't have all this like crazy expenditures. Cause even, even at like my, even at like my peak as a producer, a lot of the stuff I still wanted to do was smaller budgets. Cause I just like them, you know what I mean? Yeah, and sure. I always wanted to have a nice studio, even if like, anyway, I, I, I don't know that I think that that I found myself in a place where I made this decision thinking that it would mean that I would be like closer to my family and you know able to be home and not worried about money and not worried about like so and so got drunk and didn't show up or the songs aren't written or you know any of that and and I think that now I can see that I was just kind of running more, you know what I mean? It was like, okay. I, I was, and then I started to have time to process things that I don't think I had ever allowed myself to process. And I being, I was driving like 400 miles a day from job to job to place to place. And all I had was time to think and like, a lot of the things that I kind of buried for a really long time became unmanageable. And so <clears throat> without music and without, I mean, without even the community that surrounds music, like all mm. of a sudden I, I just had no reason. And not like my friends had turned their backs on me. It was just like, I wasn't involved in their, their life and they had a lot sure, going sure. on. So it was like, if they were in town, they'd call me, but I wasn't like just, yeah i just felt i mean i was alone and, and and um i started drinking and i started i wasn't taking care of myself like mentally or physically or any of that and and i and and honestly i i i wouldn't even let myself begin to even think about any of it i just started doing anything i could to block it out and um and right around I would say when it was kind of maybe getting to like an unmanageable point, um, we got an opportunity to do a battery show. And I had been saying no to all those things like that, but I just, 
I just like, they kind of caught me at a time when I just needed something to look forward to and I agreed to do it. And the first thing that happened was, I was just so nice to like be in touch and have things to look forward to. Because mm. one thing I never realized about all these records is there was always something on the horizon. There was always something coming. When I was in this monotonous job that didn't mean anything to me, the only thing that was coming was a paycheck. And that didn't mean anything to me. I didn't care sure. about the money. I mean, like, I still drive an old ass car and, you know, wear my jeans until they have holes in them. Like, I just never, that was never something that was mattered to me. So I just remember one day, the guitar player from Battery, we never talked about writing anything. I hadn't written my own music in 20 years. One morning I woke up and he had sent me a song and I listened to it and I just felt this like rush of emotion. And I literally just sat down and wrote the lyrics and the vocals in like 10 minutes. Like it like fell out of me. It was like, and, and then I just remember that feeling of like demoing it and having that to listen to. And then looking, we decided to record it and looking forward to that. And then like, it was like the first time I had kind of like addressed with anybody around me in, within the lyrics some of my fear about like how what I'd been through growing up and how I was dealing with it now would have like affect my daughter you know like and like connected like really kind of just like exposed this thing inside me that I hadn't and um I just remember feeling better I don't know <laughs> like yeah. I just remember feeling like I'm not hiding right now. I'm not, and this is this is real. Like this is this is what's actually going on. And I remember my wife saying to me, like, you seem more here now. You should be doing this. Like it doesn't need to be battery, it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be anything, but you need to be writing. And uh-huh. I did. And I literally, and I I'll, I I remember um I just made a commitment to myself, I'm gonna write something every day. And and I think at first I kind of envisioned that it would be battery only because that would have been the easiest. Um, <laughs> and I started sending what I was writing to the guitar player battery. And I think we got up to like, maybe like 12 or 15 ideas with no response. And, uh, <laughs> and I ended up being like, maybe we should all meet. So we had this like hilarious band meeting with like me Mike Schleibaum who's was in battery and is in be well and Ken who was like my mentor as a songwriter wow and I'm like I'm writing all this stuff and I had never written music in battery but I had become quite an accomplished songwriter and producer a lot had happened since I was 13 you know what I mean yeah 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 yeah. so, so we had this thing and I was literally like okay so you don't like any of it. <laughs> and he was like, no. <laughs> and then it was like, then it was like one of those things where it was like, okay, shit. Like, do I trust myself here? Like, yeah. is it more important to me? Um, you know, is it more important to me 
to be able to like express myself or is it more important to me to be able to have a vehicle to do that like battery was we could headline you know we could go we had a booking agent we had people that already knew the band like it just would have made the most sense but it was like what i actually needed was an a creative outlet and battery mm. wasn't going to be that it wasn't what I, I the thrill of performing is a component that i love of this but what i knew i needed the most was to have an outlet for the things that i was struggling to express otherwise mm -hmm. and mike i mean if i it's people are always surprised by this but I, it was so much harder than you could ever imagine. I, you would think my whole world is musicians and people, and I couldn't even get people to fucking listen to the demos. I could, like, wow. it was, it, it was super moralizing. And I remember that Aaron Dahlbeck, who, um, is now our bass player, who was in Bain and Converge, and we had known each other forever. He was the first person. Mike sent him the demos because he had moved to Maryland. <laughs> and <laughs> Mike sent him the demos and he wrote back like right away, I fucking love this. Like, I love this. Like, I'm in 100%. And I was Amazing. like, oh, shit. And then we kept trying people out and people kept not wanting to do it and kept, like doing this and doing that. Or you'd have, I'd have people that were like, well, I like the hardcore stuff, but I don't like the rock stuff. Or like people like, I like the rock stuff, but I don't like, and um, I would say at least half the people we sent it to never even listened to it. And I remember, so we went and we did the battery tour and we got back from the battery tour. I was like, God, I want to play. I love that so much. Maybe we just don't do be well. Maybe we just do battery and yeah, just makes sense. Things are just not breaking our way with be well. And we, the biggest thing at that point was we couldn't find a drummer and like, I don't want to say I'm a snob, but I'm a snob. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, I didn't want to do a band that wasn't like a really good band. Like, you sure. know, you know, and so we had tried out all these drummers and it just wasn't working. And then, we got home from tour and Mike Schleibaum said to me, no, I'm not letting you do that. This shit is fucking good and it's important and it's different. And what you want, you're never going to get if we do it as battery. And then the next day out of the blue, our drummer now Shane um, texted Mike and said, did you guys ever find a drummer? Because I keep listening to these demos and I really like to try out. Wow. So we all got together and literally 10 seconds into playing with him, I was like, that's it. I fucking love this guy. You're and in. <laughs> you're it. And and he's 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 an incredible drummer and and just a a fucking fantastic human being. And and it's like it's so funny because it's like now when I look at the band, it's like I just can't imagine it couldn't be without like him, without any of them. But like, it's funny that the one guy didn't really know at all okay. came in and is like, 
he's a funny guy because he doesn't chime in on everything but when he does he's so fucking right every time and even when i don't want to hear it you know what i mean like the band name we had a different band name and the day that shane tried out like join the band he was like i love this and i'm all down but we got to talk about this band (laughs) so we originally had called the band transparent moments from a right to spring song Okay. And I think he's right. Like it just wasn't a cool band name. Like it wouldn't look good on shirts and it would like, and it was funny because it was like, this guy's coming to try out and it's like, but we got to get rid of him. I love him. I love him. I love that attitude. Amazing. Yeah. And it, and, and it's, so it's been, it's been great. And then the other thing that's nice about it is everybody's in the similar, like we all have kids. We all came from like the hardcore scene and some of our, I mean, Mike and Aaron. I mean, I met Aaron the day after my first date with my wife. I took the train to Boston's because Ashes was playing with Lifetime. And that's when I met Aaron Delbeck. So we're like deep, tied yeah. deep, you know. So anyway, so Be Well is, it's, I'm, I mean, I don't want to sound I don't mean this in an egotistical way. I mean this in its sincere, I'm just fucking thrilled with how it's gone. And the response, it's not like, I mean, I wrote these songs literally thinking, well, everyone's gonna think I'm a fucking psycho now (laughs) and no (laughs) one's gonna get this. And I just literally said to myself like, I'm not going to hide behind words. I'm going to say, if there's a way to say what I'm feeling in a clear way, I'm going to say it. And I'm just not going to worry about what people think of me. Maybe for the first time. I mean, like, it's crazy. If I'm going to post on Instagram, I'm so self-conscious and I don't like attention. And I don't, if I'm going to post, I literally, I mean, I'm like, does anybody care? You know, like, like, (laughs) I'm whatever. But I just made a decision to go way outside my comfort zone. I mean, even doing the videos, I hate having my picture taken. I hate okay. seeing myself. I hate all of it. I hate all, I like gone so far outside of like what I ever thought I would do. And it's just, I don't know, like, I don't think B-Well's gonna get like huge. The reaction and like what you said, like how the record hit you, I just could never ask for anything more than that. I mean, I want to tour, I want to play, I want to keep me making music, but like what I've gotten out of this already is so much more than I ever could have dreamt of. And, and honestly, in so many ways, more than I've gotten out of anything else in my entire life. And one, it's because it's given me kind of a reason to like care about myself and to value myself. Like I I just had kind of given up on like myself in so many ways, mm. but also like, I just like, I feel like so much less alone knowing that like I've put out things that had made me feel so isolated and I put them out in like their truest form And what I got back was like warmth and acceptance, not like, it's a crazy feeling to be like, 
spend your whole life feeling like if anybody knew this about me, they would not see me in the same way. But then to put it out and have people like love me more, understand me more. Like I literally used to think when I was recording bands, like they can never know this side of me. I have to be in charge. I have to be this. If bands thought I was a fucking nut job or whatever, (laughs) they wouldn't trust me. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I thought. And it's one, so many people are like, of course I knew. You know what I mean? Like you spend that much time together and like whether you say it or not, you know. But also like, it's like, it's been so cool. Like so many of my I hate to call them clients, but bands that I've worked with, they never saw me as a, they never saw me play. Like I had, I hadn't played music in years when most, when we worked together. And it's so cool to see them be so excited. You know what I mean? Like to be like, or like stupid things that are like, you know, it's like a thrice posted a picture on Instagram and Riley's wearing a Be Well shirt that he bought. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I'm like, that's so amazing. I, I'm just letting myself appreciate those things because yeah. it's not about getting big. It's not, sure. we're, it's not about, it's about the little things. It's about like the message that someone sends me where they're like, wow, this hit me hard. And this is the little stories or like knowing that people that you care and respect are paying attention, even if like, you're not talking to them about it on a daily basis. So, I mean, like have my mental health problems gone away? No. (laughs) Do I still (laughs) second guess myself every day? Do I, you know, we're working on a new record and one minute I'll feel like, well, this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. And the next minute I'll be like, well, maybe we should just stop doing (laughs) 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 But I think when I can pull myself back and just look at it, I feel I'm, I don't have the words to express the gratitude I have for this community of people, whether it's bands, record collectors, podcasters, for just giving us this opportunity to share something that like feels important to us, you know? And yeah. And like, like, I mean, for me personally, I didn't know how to share it otherwise. And so it's like this kind of full circle thing where it's like when I was a kid, music was the first thing that ever gave me value is then there again when I need it the most. And I think that um, that's what makes this shit special. I mean, that is what makes it what you do special. And what I do special is that like, we're all kind of like, being drawn to this thing together and and there really is like a sense of community and camaraderie around it that is like super meaningful i think you know yeah 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 we we certainly do don't we since we started this yeah for sure yeah for sure and i think i think with this this album um it's going to be hugely important to a lot of people i mean as i said we're kind of bang on about it but when i first heard it i was like fuck man there's this is like all the sort of types of music that i love like hard post hardcore emo whatever you want to call it as we discussed earlier 
about being a dad <laughs> yeah and you know mental health i was like shit man did yeah did this guy like know me when he wrote this <laughs> you know most emo that we listen to is all about girls and you know being in bloody high school and shit like that <laughs> i mean it's funny because i remember i remember being um i remember being a kid and listening i would listen to the right to spring record i mean i that is like much more poetic and abstract than the way I write. But I remember sitting and listening to that record over and over and over again. And I remember feeling like this feels like everything that I've never been able to describe inside of me. I just, I remember that feeling and it's like, I'm not saying, I don't think that like what I write is on that level on anything, but I did consciously just make a decision to be as honest as possible with the lyrics. And um, and interestingly, I had several people say to me, are you sure you wanna do this? Mm. Like, if you put this out in the world, you can't ever take that back. Yep. And I mean, I think it's a testament to the punk, hardcore, emo, Instagram, whatever. <laughs> community like how accepting and how I don't feel judged at all I feel less alone than I've ever felt to be totally honest right now amazing and I'm so I'm so pleased you feel like that because that's the connection that we 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 both of us felt immediately to the music just supports that for sure it does and I feel inspired to write and I feel inspired to tour and I feel like you know I feel like it's it's I feel like I want to be better <laughs> I want to like get my shit under control I really do mm -hmm. and it's it's interesting because we're just finishing a new record now and it's kind of like interesting for me to look at the lyrics because it's 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 similarly themed in a very different way like the weight and the cost i'm in it you know what i mean i'm like in the middle of a crisis on the record and it's just no doubt about it you can hear it you can feel it and the new stuff is a lot more about me understanding that and me like starting to accept the toll it's taken on my life and like and me starting to like really commit to changing some of the things that I can change, which is not everything. Like I said, like, it's not gonna, I'm not just gonna like, you know, I've struggled with mental illness my whole life. And, and but it's like, I'm, I, it, the reaction and the support and all of it has really inspired me to want to like change you know, to want to be better, to want to be a better parent, to like, you know, set a different example for my daughter. And part of it, it's, it's interesting, but like, I was kind of, I guess, most worried about what she would think. Mm. And um, I don't think anything has ever made us closer. Like, it's oh, so amazing. Cool. She like rocks 
her be well shirt to school yeah, and like she's in the video i mean you yeah, know right? it, it, like it's 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 like it's fucking cool man you know and and i'm far from a perfect parent you know i mean i'm a far from a perfect anything yeah but it's like this whole thing has like given me a lot more clarity on like what about me does matter you know what I mean and what things may not ever be different and what things that like I do have control over that can help me counterbalance the things that I don't if that makes sense yeah for um, sure and more than anything it's given me clarity that like I don't want my daughter to grow up the way that I grew up and I don't want her to be ashamed of whatever it is whether it's <laughs> whether she's you know well a lesbian or she's depressed or she has anything like i spend my whole life being ashamed of myself Mm -hmm. and i just don't want her to ever feel that way and it's like and it's like funny because it's like i have lots of friends who have daughters and all they care about is like i'm gonna build a wall around this place and keep the boys out and (laughs) i just want her to be cool with whoever she is and yeah like love herself and I, I think she does you know and I think that um I think that I will take doing this record and showing my true self to the world even if it's maybe hard for her to hear I think that it's important and if she doesn't know that side of me then she doesn't know me you know and that's not fair to her either. So it's like, sure. um, I mean, I'm fortunate to have, you know, an awesome wife and an awesome daughter and, you know, it's been cool, man. So, yeah, for sure. And uh, so we'll, uh, I think we, we've taken up enough of your time. We're very, very <laughs> grateful. Um, yeah, just one, one last question. I know obviously uh, the, the, uh, answer is not at the moment because of, of covid but any plans to come to the uk yes actually um um we tentatively have a tour with another band that i can't announce where and i believe that there's five uk shows on that in january amazing which would be awesome i mean the thing is the shows here are starting to happen um yeah and um I mean, I think the UK has handled things well. I, we had a tour booked in November, but Germany and in Europe, it, like it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it's um, so we we postponed that. That was going to be like a like a headlining run in small rooms, um, but I think. I can't I can't say who it's with, but we we're figuring out the details of a like a two week run, and I'm excited because I really want to do more in the UK than I've done with my prior bands, and this tour has five dates there. Awesome! Which well, we we will great. look forward to that immensely. Oh yeah, we can hang, and that'll be yeah, awesome. Man. We'll be there. And I'll just stay in touch, and I'll keep you posted. Brilliant, brilliant, and we we can uh, we can show you the sights of London. Yes, I love London. Every uh, we, I, I hope, 
I always try and get the booking agents to start the tour in London so I can go early. <laughs> yes, yes, amazing. It's easy to fly into London. London's yep. just an inspiring place to be. It's just like an exciting. Yeah, that's culture. why we spend all that money on rent. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's crazy how it's. I couldn't. I, you hear my dogs are going. <laughs> um, it's crazy um, that uh, how expensive it is. Did you guys, did I see that you're having Vinny on? From the no, movie? but it would be awesome we, we, if you can hook us up. <laughs> oh, yeah. we, did you yeah. say something in a post about Vinny? Yeah, we were talking, we, um, we did a um, an episode about the uh, kind of top emo vocalists. And he was featured um, in, in quite a lot. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, we, we, on, you got to ask him about the dog on the cover of this time next year. Okay, is it your dog by the chance? Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, we'll and ask him. Was, oh. And he was, do, do you guys know Pedro the Lion? Yeah. Artist? yeah. So that dog's name was Pedro, named after Pedro the Lion. Oh, and awesome. at the same time, I'm going to embarrass myself here, but I had a cat named Popeye, named after Popeye from Farside. And then I also had a cat named Guy that was named after Guy. And one day when I was recording the Frodus record, we went out and some close, you know, scenester DC person that was like tight with Fugazi people was going to come back to the studio. And I remember being really embarrassed that I had a cat named Guy. So I told everybody, you got to call the cat Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> so we came, this Discord guy came back and we were all calling Guy the cat Johnny. But well I, I, I can i can do one worse than that because uh because my cat who's sadly no longer with us was called disco after panic at the disco ah well <laughs> if you have matt squire on you can tell him that yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> um listen I, I i'd like to finish with one last uh be well song um what what do you reckon we should play to to end the interview i would play the weight and the cost and I'll tell you a really quick snippet about how that song happened. Yeah, please because do. Because it ties in with what we were talking about. So that was the last song written for the record. And we had played a show in Philly and my wife and daughter were there. And Dan from Equal Vision called me the next day and said like, man, that was really heavy to see you playing these songs with like your daughter standing watching. Wow. And he was like, what is that? I mean, what's that like? That's like, and that's when I was like, and he was kind of, he wasn't saying like, are you sure you want to do that? Is that, I mean, he was more just saying, wow, that was it. Like I hadn't, it hit me seeing yeah. that. And, um, and then I just like, got home that night and sat down and I wrote that song and was like that's what the song is about and it's like and 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 I you know I did grapple with like is it okay for her to hear this like am I gonna change the way she feels about me and then I just decided like that's how I got myself into trouble in the first place is being afraid of what people would think when mm. in actuality you know she loves me and i'm a good father and i love her and 
the fact that I've had this happen in my life and that I've struggled with it is part of who I am and part of my journey. And hopefully she's able to like look at that and learn from it, not have some of that happen. And if I try and be a superhero who doesn't feel pain, doesn't feel anything, how is she ever going to know, you know, that it's okay to have those feelings and that she'll get through them. So anyway, that was what the waiting at cost is about. Amazing. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for for giving up so much of your time and being so honest and giving us all these awesome stories. We really, really appreciate it. Um, And we look forward to hanging out in London, hopefully. Yes. Oh man, I'll send you, I'll send you the dates on. Amazing. Brilliant pencil them in and hopefully yeah, we will. it happens yeah we will, we will keep crossed. everything crossed thanks Yay. so much brian thank you guys thank you. so much all right talk to you soon take care bye-bye bye-bye so this is the weight and the cost by be well <laughs>